Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 312 Abnormal Psychology with Professor Mark Hunter. I hope you listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Unit 7 of Psychology 312 Abnormal Psychology. Again, these videos for this unit are really meant to be an introduction in a summary of the chapters, we encourage you to read the textbook and uh, to have a deeper understanding of the topics as you prepare for your quiz and for your assignments. Chapter 13, we look at neurodevelopmental and neurocognitive disorders. Developmental psychopathology is a study how disorders arise and change over time. And these usually follow a pattern with the child mastering one skill before acquiring the next, meaning we have to learn to crawl before we are able to walk. You understand that with uh, movement, of course, and we also study that in certain areas of psychology and cognitive development, like Piaget's stages. So this aspect of development is important because it implies that any disruption in the acquisition of an early skill will by its very nature change uh, the, the developmental process and disrupt the developmental nature of later skills. So um, first we're going to look at is one that gets a lot of attention, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And the primary characteristics with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a pattern of inattention, such as not paying attention to school or work-related tasks, impulsivity, and or hyperactivity. These can disrupt your academic efforts and social relationships. And um, a lot of times, you know, people said a child had either ADHD or ADD, and they left out the hyperactivity disorder. But in the DSM-5, we refer to this as ADHD, and it may just be in a type where there's no real hyperactivity associated with that. A specific learning disorder is when the academic performance is substantially below what you would expect it to be based off the uh, student's IQ score, meaning that Someone may have, student may have an IQ of 110, they're above average. But as you do the testing for them, you realize that they struggle with um, things like uh, uh, their reading fl uh, fluidity and their processing speed. They may have problems with uh, sh working memory. And so you find out that they have a reading disorder or dyslexia and that they're intelligent overall, but there is an area of learning that is below what is expected. And so students who have been identified as this means that they're, they fall short of the expectations of what they would be expected to have based off their IQ score. So students get accommodations and they're able to maybe have more time to take an assessment because it takes longer to read the test or they may have the test read to them, um, various other accommodations. So 
a learning disorder is not an intellectual disorder. It just means that overall, one area of, of learning is um, deficient from what we expected it to be. Um, communication and motor disorders seem to be related to learning disorders, and these can be things such as stuttering, um, you know, which disturbs our speech fluency. A language disorder, meaning limited speech in, in all situations, but without the types of cognitive deficits that lead to language problems, meaning that they may have problems with writing skills or uh, reading skills, but they're able to communicate fine with, you know, with people maybe talking, but they have struggles with those parts of communication language that are maybe more academically related. Tourette's disorder, this is an involuntary movement, motor movement, where uh, such as head twitching or vocalizations, such as grunts, that occur suddenly in rapid succession and um, which can be stereotypical for that individual, meaning that they tend to do this thing uh, frequently or that's the way that they tend to express themselves. Uh, autism spectrum disorder. We, um, we people with autism spectrum disorder experience problems processing language, socialization, and cognition. Um, now, it's not a minor problem, such as a learning specified learning disorder, but it conditions how people live and interact with others. So there is, uh, as it says, a spectrum, meaning there's certain individuals who are relatively mild uh, symptoms with this. And then you have individuals who have very severe symptoms, which they're unable to communicate, use language. Uh, they have repetitive motions a lot. They have problems in socialization with individuals. So um, again, it, this is where social communication skills are restricted, meaning that the child or individual may struggle to pick up on social cues, such as when someone is smiling, that means they're happy, or frowning, that means they're upset. And so they're not being able to pick up on these cues as well. And so um, and sometimes they have to be taught this. Repetitive behaviors where and activities where they may focus on a particular toy or an activity and just do it again and again and again for hours. Um, there's no real single cause for this. And there's a number of biological uh, conditions that may contribute to this. And along with psychosocial factors. Um, and so this at one time was viewed as a result of cold mothering, where mothers didn't give their children uh, the attention they need. And of course, you can imagine the, the guilt mothers felt if they felt that they were the cause of the autism spectrum disorder, but we've, we know that that's not the case with this. So anytime that a a child is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, the very best thing that can happen is to get them into therapy early on. The earlier you can provide therapy for that child, 
the the better chance they're able to learn new skills and to uh, to be able to communicate, to associate with others. And uh, so, um, so sometimes this can be uh, parents can really be uh, hesitant to have their child tested because they're fearful of this diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. But, um, and the child gets to be older, and so there can be treatment done for those children, of course, but it's the earlier a child receives the treatment, the more successful it will probably be. Intellectual developmental disorder is different from learning disorder because people sometimes get that confused. Again, learning disorder, you can have a, an average IQ or above average IQ and have a, one area of deficiency that educationally. Intellectual developmental disorder is where there's um, sub-average intellectual functioning really across the board in all areas. And um, that it can be, and it's seen before the age of 18. And it interferes with education, of course, but also interferes with just everyday adaptive functioning life skills. Sources of this can be uh, Down syndrome, which is caused by the presence of an extra 21st chromosome. And um, it can, we are able to detect the uh, presence of this through prosopoamnesthesis. Uh, There's other types of um, disabilities, I mean, diseases or that contribute to intellectual disability, fragile X syndrome, which is caused by a chromosomal abnormality in the tip of the X chromosome. Um, it can be a cultural familial intellectual disability, meaning that if a child is raised in very severe, limited environment, uh, where there's very little to no stimulation, um, and they're not able to get the the cognitive um, stimulation that they need for their language skills or other things. After a certain number of years, after about, you know, age two, or um, their, their language skills become limited. So there's, um, it can be based on the environment. So um, how do we prevent this? It uh, oftentimes is, um, can be prevented by, um, by prenatal care. Um, it can uh, sometimes, um, we also know that certain types of uh, substance abuse, such as alcohol, fetal syndrome, can affect the um, development of intellectual disabilities where the mother ingests alcohol during her pregnancy. Um, the, um, but we uh, know that there can be um, better understanding of these, uh, of these disorders and uh, better treatment. It doesn't mean that there's a cure, but it means that uh, people are able to be seen as gifts from God and that it is used to have a, uh, a positive impact in our lives and that we can have a positive impact in theirs. There's uh, other neurocognitive disorders such as uh, delirium or mild or major neurocognitive disorder. 
Delirium is a temporary state of confusion or disorientation which can be caused by a brain trauma or essentially like a concussion of some sort or intoxication by drugs or, or poisons or even through surgery or a variety of other stressful conditions and especially during older adults. And again, it's being temporary where someone momentarily forgets where they're at. It, it doesn't mean that you can't remember just because you can't find your car keys that you have delirium or why did I walk in this room? You know, that's not delirium, but it, it's sort of where you're unaware of whose house you're in when you're in your own house and who these people are. And then so this um, these are the more the conditions that that are related to that. Uh, major neurocognitive disorders is a progressive and a degenerative condition marked by gradual deterioration in a range of cognitive abilities. This includes your memory or language or planning or executive functioning, organizing, sequencing, and abstracting information. So this means that once this has been diagnosed, that it, it's uh, a slower um, but progressive um, illness that um, that can lead to more severe symptoms. Mild neurocognitive disorder is a condition where there's early signs of cognitive decline that begins to interfere with activities in daily living, such as um, you know where you're you're unable to remember things as well, where you may have to find that you're dependent upon writing lists down, where Previously, you didn't have to write those things down, and that you might have to make, uh, you know, certain arrangements about where you keep things, and so you don't find yourself losing them as much. Alzheimer's disease is the leading cause of neurocognitive disorder, and this affects about four million people in the United States. And currently, unfortunately, there's no known cure for Alzheimer's meaning that uh, once someone is diagnosed, then it uh, will progress and um, usually eventually lead to their death. Um, there's Your textbook goes into much more detail, of course, about the causes of, of, of Alzheimer's disease and talks about things like Lewy bodies and vascular disease. It also refers to Parkinson's disease, um, Huntington's disease. And there's other less common conditions that interfere with cognitive impairment. So uh, some of these things like Parkinson's, we may think of more physical, of shaking hands and such, but it can have an effect on our cognitive functioning as well. Usually the treatment for this is helping patients cope with uh, the continuing loss of cognitive skills. And, helping the caregivers deal with the stress of caring for someone who's affected by these illnesses. Our last chapter is chapter 14, Mental Health Services, Legal and Ethical Issues. What's a civil commitment? A civil commitment laws determine the conditions in which a person may be certified legally to have a mental illness and therefore be placed in a hospital sometimes in conflict with, with the person's own wishes. You know, this is not what they desire, but as necessary. Um, the conditions that have led to this is usually is the person 
has a mental illness and is in need of treatment, or a person is dangerous to himself or herself or others, and or the person is unable to care for themselves. Mental illness is used in the legal system is not synonymous with psychological disorder. In the, um, there's what's referred to in the legal term, legal uh, uh, system is not what we use in the psychological system. Each state has its own definition of mental illness. And usually this means people with severe disturbances that uh, negatively affect their health and safety. So again, they're looking at it from a legal uh, perspective versus the psychological. And we've gone through this course, we've talked about sometimes these symptoms are mild and people have these, can have a psychological disorder, but not be in any danger to themselves or others. So, but also having a mental illness doesn't really increase a likelihood of dangerousness. Um, a lot of times we feel like if somebody has a mental disorder or someone has committed a crime that they must have had a mental disorder. That's not the case. Um, the, um, if someone does have hallucinations or delusions, yes, that, uh, may, that increases the risk of behaving violently. But just because someone has a, um, a psychological disorder doesn't mean that they are dangerous in and of themselves. The combination of lacks of success with deinstitutionalization, meaning that there was a movement in the 1960s, 1970s, where there was a, where people with mental disorders were previously put in sanitariums, uh, psychiatric hospitals, and institutionalized. And there was uh, really inhumane conditions and treatment of those patients. So there were laws enacted which removed people from those settings. And so in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, people left those institutions, a lot of those institutions shut down. What we've had now is what is called trans-institutionalization, which is a rise in homelessness, meaning people who are homeless off sometimes uh, have mental illnesses and they're not able to uh, adapt to everyday society to keep a home. It's not that sometimes that they're unable to find a home or want a home, it's just um, that they're not being able to live in a, in a stable environment. Um, so this idea of removing people from these institutions, but then some in society but not having a place for them has caused other problems as well. Criminal commitment is a process in which people are held for two reasons. They've accused of committing a crime and detained in a mental health facility until they determine as either fit or unfit to participate in legal proceedings against them, a trial against them. Or they've been found not guilty of a crime by reason of insanity. So um, the insanity defense is defined in a number, number of legal 
Rule means. The McNaughton Rule says that people are not responsible for their criminal behavior if they do not know what they are doing or do they may not, or they do, do know and they don't know it's wrong. The Durham Rule is broaden the criteria from knowledge to right and wrong to the presence of a mental disease or defect, meaning that there needs to be a diagnosis there. The American Law Institute criteria concluded that people were not responsible for the criminal behavior if because of their mental illness they lacked either the cognitive ability to recognize the inappropriateness of their behavior or the ability to control their behavior. So this concept of diminished capacity holds that people's ability to understand the nature of their behavior and therefore their criminal intent could be lessened by their mental illness. And a termination of competence must be made before an individual can stand trial for a criminal offense. Um, so there usually is a psychological assessment done uh, to, and uh, of understanding is there a mental illness there and are they able to understand the charges against them and assist in their own defense. Duty to warn is a standard that sets forth the responsibility of the therapist to warn potential victims that a client may attempt to hurt or kill them, uh, or kill them. Meaning that if you're a therapist and you're in treatment with someone and they mention that they may hurt or kill an individual, even though typically you would keep those uh, conversations private, you have a duty to warn that individual that they're being threatened. Individuals who have specialized knowledge and who assist judges and juries in making decisions, such about issues such as competence um, um, and things like malingering are called expert witnesses, where they're called in the trial to give their opinion about maybe this specific disorder and how it will affect that individual. So patients do have rights, um, and we talked about the commitment and criminal commitment, but, um, but the primary or more fundamental right is the right to treatment. Um, but there's, you know, there's a great deal of controversy that exists about whether all patients are capable of making a decision to refuse treatment, um, that's especially with antipsychotic uh, medications. You know, if somebody that um, is, has uh, paranoias, has hallucinations, has delusions, if they see someone providing them a pill or an injection of some sort, they may feel that that is to cause them harm rather than to treat them and therefore they may refuse that. And so um, questions come up, can these patients really refuse treatment? Anytime that someone participates in any research uh, regarding abnormal psychology or anything, they really need to be informed of the risk and the benefits, informed of their, and uh, give their informed consent before they can participate. They, any type of research that is done, the subject has to sign a form that they understand the purpose for this uh, research. And so in clinical practices, um, you're, you know, the clinician 
has, um, you know, gives the patient what treatments may be effective for this disorder. Um, but this is where they are looking at evidence that this treatment would be effective as opposed to just trying things because they wanted to try things and using their, um, you know, their patients as guinea pigs for their own desires. But, uh, um, but so when you're providing treatment to an individual um, with, an, with a dis psychological disorder, you want to make sure that the treatment that they're giving is appropriate for that treatment. Well, that ends our lesson for Unit 7 and for this course. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed this overview. And I encourage you, again, to use your textbook and uh, other resources we have available for you in the course to uh, prepare and understand for your quizzes and for your assignments. Thank you.